Well, good evening. My name is Stephen, and I'm the young adult pastor here. And tonight we're going to continue our series on the power to. We've been talking about contending for the power of God in our lives, in every area of our lives. And so tonight we're going to talk about the power to change. So let's open with some prayer. Father, we thank you tonight that you are a powerful God. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate in us what needs to change. Lord, that there would be not just empty religion, but true heart transformation that happens in each of us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, my junior year of college, I lived in a house with nine other guys. And it was about as gross and disgusting as you were picturing in your head right now. I don't know why we thought this was a a good idea. Um, But we had one guy who, even by the standard of some college men who were messy, was ridiculously messy. We had to have multiple conversations with him because he was so messy. And at first, you know, it was just kind of calm conversation, you know, approaching him about some of the dishes that were piling up and some of the clothes that were all over the house. But progressively, our uh, intervention became more and more urgent as he continually ignored our request just to be a little bit more tidy. In fact, one day when he came home from school, we had to have a house meeting just about his messiness. It got to the point that one of the guys in our, in our house was actually a part of the, the ROTC, the, the military, and he convinced his, uh, his leader of the military to allow him to take some dem- uh, demerit sheet. And he wrote one of our uh, housemates' demerits from the U.S. Army. And that did not swayed him at all. He continued in his messiness. Finally, it got to the point that we took all of his dishes in the sink, a couple months' worth of dishes. We pile, I told you, this is bad, y'all, okay? We piled it up on a blanket. And we hoisted it in his bed for him to walk into his bed full of dirty dishes. And that did not solve the problem. As things progressed, we had to get more and more creative about addressing this problem. And sadly, we never really addressed it until the next year where we kicked him out. But anyway, he's still a friend to this day. So um, anybody who's a parent knows, though, that parenting is... A lar- largely about finding creative ways to express to your children their need to change. And in Isaiah chapter 1, the passage we're going to look at tonight, God uses some powerful imagery through the prophet Isaiah to address the need for his people, the nation of Judah, to change. And so I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. And my hope is that tonight, by looking at this chapter, we'll see how God might not just be getting a hold of the nation of Judah's attention, but he wants to get the attention of us here tonight. So tonight's going to be a little bit different. Instead of reading the whole passage uh, in its entirety, we're going to kind of go through it verse by verse. The first verse says this, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah was a prophet of God, primarily to the nation of Judah. The nation of Israel had been, because of a civil war, separated between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which were called just Judah. 
And so Isaiah is addressing this nation Judah, which is God's chosen people. They're of the line of David. And Isaiah's ministry spanned, it was a pretty extensive ministry. It spanned the course of four kings' rules. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And that first king, Uzziah, was a very faithful king to God at first. Because of his faithfulness, God blessed the nation. They became prosperous. Their military grew strong. But at the end of Uzziah's life, because of his pride, he turned from God. And the people went into idolatry. Uzziah didn't do anything about it. And so while things remained good on the outside, the prosperity continued, the military strength continued, the spiritual climate of the nation severely decayed. And that's the backdrop of the prophet Isaiah addressing this nation for their need to change. What are his first words? Look at verse 2. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, those words would remind the Israelites of some words that were spoken many years before that. Because God had made a covenant. He renewed a covenant with his people. And he had laid out the ramifications of their disobedience, curses if they disobeyed him. And he laid out blessings if they were to obey him. And at the end of this covenant, Moses, the leader of the people, calls upon the heavens and the earth to be a witness of this covenant. And now Isaiah is hearkening back to those words as he addresses this nation, and he's calling upon the heavens and the earth to testify against the people because they've broken the covenant of God. He gives a series of five images to shock them, to show them their true spiritual state. Now, anybody who is creative or knows somebody who's creative realizes that creative people always look like they're doing nothing. They look like they're just kind of going, just doing their own thing, off in their own world. But as soon as there's a tragedy, as soon as there's a celebration, as soon as there's a big moment in an organization or a church or even in a nation, who do we call on? The poets, the singers, the dancers, the creatives. Because there's something about Creativity, there's something about the power of imagery that evokes our emotions as human beings. And the prophet Isaiah is going to string together a series of five indictments or charges against the nation of Judah using some very powerful imagery to shock them into realizing that they're not as well off as they think they are. And I want you to track with me tonight as we go through these. The first one is he gives this image of a child. Look at verse 2, the second half of verse 2. This is God speaking. He says, children have I reared and brought up. See, the Hebrews saw God not just as the ruler of their nation. They saw God as a nurturing, loving father. But what God says to them is, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. This is like a Nova teenager who grew up in a prosperous place. Parents who provided everything, protected him or her, food on the table, goes to all the baseball games and all the basketball games, 16 years old, gets a brand new car. I mean, living the life. Mom and dad are there, faithful, great parents. And then at the age of 16 or 17, 
They say, you know what? I think I can do this a better way. Thanks, mom and dad, but I'm going to go my own route. That's what Judah is. God has nurtured them and loved them, and now they're children that have become estranged to their father. He says in verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What Isaiah is getting at here is, look, you guys who live in Judah, everybody owned a, uh, an oxen at that time. Oxen at that time, they owned donkeys. They, they recognized that oxen were stubborn and donkeys were stupid. But even oxen and donkeys knew where to find their food at night. And the people of Judah have become so rebellious, they don't even have the sense of oxen or donkeys. He says, ah, verse 4, sinful nation. Now, this isn't like an ah, like a contemplative, like, ah, sinful. This is a term of woe, of grief, of agony, like a father whose son has gone wayward and is grieving the fact that that son isn't out making money and being successful and loving God and being, the son is about to reap the consequences for his or her rebellion. As a child who's rebelled, for their, rebelled from their father, they're headed down a path of destruction. God's looking at his children and seeing the path that they're going down and he's grieved they're laden with iniquity. They're literally loaded down with sin. Judah is not just a child. They are an ungrateful, rebellious child. The second image he uses as an indictment against the people, he says in verse 5, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Judah is a battered, almost dead body that refuses treatment. It's like a rich young executive heading to a Nats game whose wife tells him, you know, honey, it's kind of dangerous at night around the stadium. Make sure you park in an authorized parking spot. And the husband says, you know what? I'm rich, successful. I got people working for me. I'm powerful. I can take care of myself. Goes into that part of D.C. where you shouldn't go late at night. Gets jumped. His wife, concerned, goes to support her husband. Sees her husband beaten face dismangled, goes down, reaches out to, to help him, to tend to his wounds. And with the last muster of strength he has, he says, no, get away from me. That's an issue of Judah. God has looked at them and tenderly extended his hand. And yet time and time again, because of their rebellion, they've been ravaged. They've received blows. And instead of allowing God to be a healer to them, they've turned their back against God. It says in verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Verse 8, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So here Isaiah is. He's looking out on the city of Jerusalem. There's children laughing and playing and dancing. There's businessmen and women making deals and, and making a lot of money. There's festivities, and, and it's a time of rejoicing. And yet, as a prophet of God, he sees beyond the present circumstances. 
He's looking out in the distance of what's to come. And what he sees in the distance is an empire of Assyria that's closing in on this nation. That in a few years would end up ransacking the nation of Judah, wiping out all the cities except for Jerusalem, destroying the people of God and leaving just a remnant. He sees beyond that horizon to an empire of Babylon who would eventually come, destroy the city of Jerusalem, desecrate the temple, and carry off the people into captivity. For Isaiah, it's not a time of dancing and laughing and joy. It's a time of moral decay, a time of repentance, a time to cry out to God. Judah, the third image, is like a devastated city. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. See, this fourth indictment is probably the most shocking to the people. Because Sodom and Gomorrah, they thought of the same way we think of today. Sodom and Gomorrah was the epitome of evil and wickedness. These were cities that oppressed the poor. These were, these were cities that idolatry was rampant. Sexual immorality was rampant. It was Las Vegas on crack. <laughs> and yet, Isaiah takes it even a step further. He says, not only are you like Sodom and Gomorrah, but verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He actually starts addressing them and their leaders as Sodom and Gomorrah. It would be as if somebody came into this church today and started calling our leaders wicked people of our day. They're the epitome of wickedness. Now that I have everybody depressed, there is hope in this passage. Here's the people who are willfully ignorant of their sin. And I recognize that's an oxymoron, willfully ignorant. But Judah doesn't want to know what they know. They don't want anything to do with God's commands. God has made things very clear, very simple, and yet they have turned their back on God. And I recognize in this nation, or I recognize that this nation of Judah and this time period literally thousands of years ago, feels distant to us today. But my fear is that you and I are more like the nation of Judah than we think. I, like many of you, have been grieved by the downward decay of morality in our nation. I have bemoaned, like many of you, the legislation that has sought to redefine the definition of gender or of marriage. I've been alarmed by the sudden spike in violence and school shootings in our schools. I've decried the insensitive and even racist statements of some of our political leaders. I've been shocked by an entertainment industry that's become so perverse and offensive to God. I've been disappointed in the divisiveness of our nation between white and black, Republican and Democrat. But oh, how I've been so willfully ignorant of my own idolatry. The times I hear the Spirit of God beckoning me to spend time with him instead of watching YouTube videos, I've ignored. 
the times I've been prompted by the Spirit to rise early and to pray for my family or my church or my nation instead I've chosen to sleep in. The times I get in pulpits like this and care more about what you think than what God thinks. The issue for us is not whether there's power to change. The issue for us is do we even recognize our need for change? Do we even want change? Or do we continue in our willful ignorance like Judah? Judah's objection, and it's not stated in this passage, but it's implied because of verse 11, would go something like this. Their defense when they they hear these four indictments would be something like, whoa, 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 Isaiah. Like, I know you're a prophet and you're a pretty radical guy and you hear from God and everything. But I, I don't think we're a rebellious, ungrateful child. I don't think we're battered almost dead body. I don't think we're a devast- we'll be a devastated, war-torn city, or I don't think we're like Sodom and Gomorrah. Haven't you seen our Sunday morning attendance? Haven't you seen our small group leaders? Haven't you seen our hands that have been lifted up in worship? Every time we do a corporate fast, we do water only, Isaiah. But here's God's response in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. See, Judah has form, but they have no substance. They have ritual, but no inward renewal. They have practice, but no passion. They have empty religion and need revival. This last image is that they are hypocrites. They are those who have lifted up hands in worship, but their hands are blood-soaked from those that they've oppressed. It's not the religion that's the problem. It's that the religion is empty. What does God expect from his people. What does he want from us? It's pretty clear. Look at verse 16. We'll skip the next couple of verses and go to 16 for the sake of time. But notice the simplicity of these commands. Pretty straightforward with God. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now that sounds like a lot of do this and don't do this. And our faith is based on grace through faith. Yes. But what Isaiah is saying is that repentance and faith involves a participation on our end. That genuine faith and repentance leads to a life that bears the mark of a believer. And that if we find ourselves simply going through the religious motions, when our life doesn't resemble us turning from sin and doing good and fighting the oppressed, we need to change. It's after this series of five indictments, God has heard the charges The heavens and the earth have bare witness to the guilty sentence of this nation. 
It's at that point that God offers a truly startling invitation. And it's an invitation to access the power to change. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Now, when I invite my children to reason about something that they've done that's disobedient, it's not a meeting of the minds. I'm not looking for them to convince me and reason with me about why what they did is wrong. I'm inviting them to see things the way that I see things. Because as the parent, the way I see things is hopefully more accurate to what, how they should see things. And God's inviting the people to see things from his perspective. This is a father inviting a rebellious child to return home. This is a healer inviting a beaten, battered body to be healed. This is a protector inviting a city to repent and avoid destruction. This is the Holy One of Israel inviting a wicked city that was compared to Sodom and Gomorrah to be reformed and to turn to God. This is the Lord God Almighty inviting empty religion to be revived and to be filled. And today, regardless of how severe your idolatry might be, how long you've kept your sin a secret, how damaging the consequences of your disobedience might be, this same invitation is extended to you and I. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. See, during this time, the only way to get something red like scarlet or crimson was you would take a shellfish that was indigenous to that area and you would crush it and it would produce this purple dye. And when you dyed a piece of cloth or whatever you were dyeing, there was no going back because that stain was permanent. Isaiah tells the people that your sin is like a thick red stain. There's no amount of tide or oxyclean. There's no 40 days of this or seven steps of that that are going to rid you of the stain. And yet as the prophet Isaiah looks in the horizon, he sees a substance that's chemical composition came from a human body, but not just a human body. It came from a divine being. It came from a pure and spotless lamb. It's a substance that obtained eternal redemption for those in Christ. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we come honestly, if we recognize our need to change, if we come not playing religious games, if we come to God laying bare our wickedness and our sin before him, he will make us as white as snow. He will make us become like wool. And Isaiah lays a choice before the people, and I believe the Holy Spirit is laying the choice before you and I today. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Prosperity, relationship with God, peace, life, joy. Verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The power to change is available through the blood of Jesus, 
but are we willing to be changed? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that it's by the blood of Jesus that we come. We come to your throne with confidence. We come knowing that any sin that we've committed, no matter how heinous, God can be forgiven by you through that blood. Lord, we look into our own hearts today. We examine ourselves. Holy Spirit, would you examine us today? And if there be anything in our lives that are keeping us from enjoying the fullness of a relationship with you, oh God, unveil that to us tonight and allow us to be healed, cleansed, and restored. In Jesus' name.